Good evening, everybody, and welcome to, amazingly, our third snow Sunday in a row. We have never canceled three services in a row, nor have we ever canceled two, as far as I know, services in a row. And the irony here is that someone had asked me about a month ago now, hey, with the storm coming up, do you think that we'll have church? And I answered, our default is always to have church. It takes certain circumstances for us to ever cancel. And then I told him, I don't believe we've canceled in the last two years. (laughs) And here we are, the third Sunday in a row. Now, if you're looking outside like I am at 5.15 p.m. on Sunday evening, you're thinking, hmm, it only snowed about two inches and it's foggy. Couldn't we have had church? The answer is, well, it looks at this moment like we might have been able to. But the reality is that we have to make these calls much earlier than the moment of church. And at the time, Our wonderful weather report said several inches of snow falling 100% during the hours we'll be at church. (laughs) It's since then been reduced to a couple inches and to 50% chance, and at the moment it's only foggy. Go figure. But God knows, right? And maybe he didn't want us starting Ezekiel tonight. Maybe instead he wanted you to have a casual, relaxed evening in your slippers, sipping hot cocoa, coffee, Darjeeling tea, whatever it is, with the fire crackling or the heater on or the space heater close by, your favorite blanket wrapped around you, and your worn leather Bible open in front of you. Maybe that's what he knew you needed tonight. Whichever it is, I'm excited to get the chance to share with you the Lord's Prayer. So, if you have your Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read the entirety of the section, and then we will go line by line. And I'll share a little bit about my personal journey with this prayer. So, Matthew chapter 6, we'll start in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is not the prayer itself, but Jesus is teaching about prayer. And what He does before He gives us a model prayer is He shows us how not to pray. Do not hemp, do not heap up empty phrases. That's what the pagans do, he tells them. They think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now you might know people like that who think that they'll be heard for their many words, or maybe put a little bit differently, might be noticed for their many words, or might actually feel like they're important because of their many words. We're not to approach God that way, first of all, because we are already important to Him. He already hears us. And second of all, prayer is not an activity designed to get God's attention. God already 
has given his full attention to us. And if Jesus on the cross didn't say that, nothing else will, certainly not heaping up many words in your prayer. No, prayer is a practice which God uses to get our attention. You see, God is not somebody we have to get to look our way. He needs us to look his way. You can imagine that prayer is this ongoing current, this ongoing stream running underneath reality all the time. And when we enter into our Father, we are choosing to step beyond the mere physicality of our life and entering into that undercurrent. That for once, we are choosing to see the world, to experience life from God's perspective. And what Jesus then wants to do through this prayer is he wants to invite us into dipping our toe into that stream, that flow of his being. So then he tells them in verse 9, Pray then like this. Now, what we're about to read has been called the Lord's Prayer by many. In fact, the sub, the little title here in my Bible even says the Lord's Prayer. Some have taken exception to that because they say this is not the Lord's Prayer. This is the disciples' prayer because Jesus was teaching them to pray it. Okay, a fine point, but I feel like we're mincing words here. One of the, a great way, a great name for this would be the Our Father, since those are the first words of the prayer. But many of you may uh, recall, those of you who are former Catholics may recall that that's what they call the prayer, and maybe that title doesn't sit well with you. It's like, oh, the Our Father, and then it kind of puts you back in that drone, dead, repetitious form of the prayer. So, I prefer to call this simply the prayer, the prayer, because really what Jesus is showing us here is a model for what we're to step into, this stream of the being of God. So there's going to be five lines in which we're going to focus on. We'll read all five, then I'll go through them. He says, pray them like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, Jesus is now teaching, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, to remember the five lines, I simply assign each of them a single word. And for the first line, it's hallowed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, this forever was just such a weird opening for me. Um, hallowed. Like, that's not a word 
we use every other day in our normal speech. In fact, it's not a word we ordinarily use except for when we are reciting this prayer or referring to the 31st of October, where you do see the word appear in a compound form in pop culture, Halloween. So it's a strange word to use. And this is simply all that it means. To hallow something is to honor it as holy or to make it holy, which is another way of saying you're going to set it apart or aside because it is now specially designated for unique purposes. That's what it means to hallow. So we are entering into a prayer that's asking us to hallow God's name. What's helped me, because defining hallow with make it holy, set it apart as holy, honor it as holy, is really, to me, using religious jargon to define religious jargon. What's helped me is to see that when I hallow something, I am giving it weight and substance. Of everything in the world, I'm singling out this, and I am giving to it my attention, my adoration, my praise. I see it as the ultimate reality, as the ultimate good in my life. And so I want to put weight upon it. I want it to stand out with substance. That helps me to imagine what it means to hallow the name of God. He is weightier, more substantial, more real than anything else. And of course he is. He created everything else. So that, for me, is how I approach the prayer, hallowed be your name. Another way to help me remember what I'm praying for is to think of a word that sounds similar to hallow. It's hollow, not H-A-L-L-O-W, hallow, but H-O-L-L-O-W, hollow. The word you use when you refer to something that has a shell but is empty within, right? It's a nut shell without the nut inside of it. Perhaps you've opened a peanut shell like that. It's hollow, right? You could flick your finger on it and hear there's no substance inside. That's hollow. To hallow something is to do the opposite of hollowing something. To hallow is to put substance within that emptiness. And, and so this part of the prayer is inviting me to find true reality, true weight, true substance in God. That as I go through life, I am continually being hollowed out by the world, by my flesh. As I'm accused, I'm always wanting to defend myself. Uh, I'm always having to pour my energy out over here or over there. Or my ego, which is always starved for attention, always starved for somebody to notice it as being valuable and, and really substantial. My ego wants to be hallowed, but in its attempts, it's hollowing my life. Because the ego's emptiness, the ego can only define itself by attaching itself to something. But when we pray, hallowed be your name, we recognize that we are satisfied and we are fully alive when we attach ourselves to God, the true, substantial, thick, real one. So we pray, hallow be your name. Second word, kingdom. Verse 10, 
your kingdom come, which the next line defines as your will be done. The kingdom of God, though it does have a future physical reality, in the present is brought to our lives and on the earth when and wherever the will of God is done. Because that is what the kingdom of God is. It's the place where God is unresisted and whatever he wills is accomplished. That's where his kingdom is. And when we permit his will to be done in our lives and extend it to the lives and the places around us, we are bringing the kingdom. And the third line says, on earth as it is in heaven. So let your kingdom come, or in other words, let your will be done on earth. As it is in heaven means that's the place where his will is already being done. Heaven is God's realm. Earth is humanity's realm. In the Garden of Eden, the two were united. They were harmonized. They were one. God walked with his creatures in the garden. But through our rebellion, we split earth away from heaven and said, thanks God, you stay over there. We will run things our way. And ever since then... His will is done absolutely in heaven, but only occasionally on earth through humans who permit his will to be done. And when those humans permit his will to be done, heaven, the place of God's will, comes to earth. When I come to this line of the prayer, I am praying I am praying that I would understand how to bring heaven, the kingdom, the will of God first into my own life and then into the lives around me. But I must start with my own life because if I am not walking the will of God and if I am not finding that peace of heaven in my own life, then I will, out of my own misery and disappointment, bring everything else around me down. I have to be filled with his will, with his kingdom, with heaven, before I can ever expect to carry that to others. So, hallowed be your name, so that I may become substantial by rubbing up against the one who is substantial. Kingdom. And third, bread. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I once heard someone preach, and I don't have his exact words right, but I have the idea right. I can't quite, I haven't quite been able to retrieve it, but it blew me away. This person preached on this verse. Something like, what a wimpy prayer. I'm not praying for bread when the God of the universe is whom I'm addressing. I'm praying for loads of ice cream. And I don't remember his ice cream, but it was something like better than bread. He's saying we ought to be praying bigger prayers than meager, crusty daily bread. Now, On the surface, this can sound right. Of course, we have a big God. We need big prayers. But then you begin to think, wait, 
But Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. Something is severely amiss here. And this is when I began to understand this prayer. It was when I began to learn that I live with too much. And one of the best ways to experience the presence of God in my life is to live with less. In the time that Jesus was talking, many of the peasants in Galilee literally prayed for daily bread. They had a single loaf a day to live on. They needed this prayer desperately. I don't know what it's like to pray for daily bread. I have a week's worth of bread in my pantry, in my fridge, in my freezer, right? We all do. We have a lot more than what we need on a daily basis. And through this prayer, one day God just started to break into me and say, Brandon, you can do with less. I began to realize that he's right. I eat too much. I have too much. I do too much. And connected with this, too muchness, it's very much ingrained in our prosperous society. Did you know that Americans occupy a mere 5%, 5% of the Earth's population, yet we consume roughly 25% of the Earth's energy? Did you hear that? 5% of the population using 25% of the Earth's energy. Yeah, Americans use a lot. And so, while I may not be praying for at least daily bread, I've learned to pray, God help me be content with only having daily bread. And you know what happens? Is we become less selfish. We become more generous. We aren't clinging on to our stuff as if we live in a world of scarcity, but we're living open-handed as if a gracious world of abundance. When somebody needs something, I have something to give. And what it's done is it's untied my attachment to things. I realize as I practice living in simplicity that I can get by with far less than I do. This line of the prayers becomes so important to me because it teaches me something that goes against the cultural convention, the the conventional culture that I live in. So, we pray that God's name would be hallowed. We pray for his kingdom. We pray for bread. Help me to live with less. Then we pray in the ESV, English Standard Version, for debt. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Or the New King James Version says, and forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven our trespassers. Uh, the New Living just simplifies both terms and says, forgive us our sins as we Forgive those who sin against us. None of these translations are wrong. In the time of Jesus, 
many of the peasants of Galilee lived in debt. And to pray for the forgiveness of their debt was nothing short of salvation for them. This prayer would have rung true to them. Yes, deliver us from our debt. But that feeling of their financial debt helped them to relate to the debt that they owe to God. And so that can show us where trespasses comes in, is that we understand we have crossed God and that we need forgiveness of that. So using a monetary example to show us our spiritual condition, that we have sins and that we are in debt. And so here we come to a prayer where we're recognizing that we owe God more than we can ever give him because we have crossed him more than we can ever imagine. Sorry, I didn't mean that. No play on words intended there, but cross. The cross is where he dealt with our sins. And so I come to this place and just thank him for forgiveness. That I don't have to work anything up to earn his favor, but it's already given to me. But I don't stop there. It would be easy to stop there. But the next line is challenging. As we also have forgiven. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. And then you notice that at the end of the prayer, Jesus teaches in verse 14, that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Oh, friends, this scares most of us. It frightens most of us. We don't know what to do with this because it sounds like Jesus is teaching, you must do these works in order to be saved. But we know that Paul tells us that we are not saved by works. So what's going on? Do I have to forgive in order to be forgiven? Yes and no. Here's what happens. God already generously and freely forgives me, regardless if I forgive my neighbor for parking his truck so far into the road that the berm is now 20 feet from my car instead of 5 feet from it. Right? He has already forgiven me, whether I forgive that neighbor or not. But the difference is, if I don't forgive my neighbor, I am incapable of receiving the forgiveness of God. Not that I'm not forgiven. I'm incapable of receiving the goodness and the grace of his favor turned toward me. Because you see, I'm holding my fist tightly against my neighbor. He has wronged me. So guess what? He's in debt to me. He's done a wrong. He's now in debt to me. And I want to hold that against him. By the way, this is where we see trespasses and debts coming into play, right? He trespassed me, so I want to hold him in debt, right? I now have the moral higher ground, and he owes me now. And as long as I hold this against him, I'm going to constantly be looking at him and the world around me as owing me something because I've been wronged. But what I need to do is release that debt. I need to let it go. I need to forgive it. Because then my hands will be open, my heart will be softened, and I will be in a place that can receive the generosity of God toward me. 
And that will transform me. I will be less hateful, less resentful, less irritated, less frustrated with the people around me. And I'll be more patient, gracious, forgiving, merciful, compassionate toward them. So I'm the one who loses by refusing to forgive. God is giving us an opportunity here to let go of our clenched fists, to let our neighbors out of their debtor's prison so that we can experience his abundance. Hallowed, kingdom, bread, debt, and now evil. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God wouldn't lead you into sin. Temptation often means testing, and the prayer is saying, please don't make it too hard on us. <laughs> and in his time, there was a lot of testing at play, especially the Romans lording over them. And then the church living in the Roman Empire always tested. The, the prayer is asking, please don't lead us into unnecessary tests. We don't want the tests, but we're thankful for what they can do if we must endure them, right? But deliver us from evil. It is the evil that puts us in these tests. Um, but we live in a society which is fairly free. Christians, although, you know, um, hatred towards us is increasing, we still live very free and without persecution. But something I realized as I prayed this is God would start to jog in my mind societal evils that hold me imprisoned. And they're imprisoning us because we aren't always aware of them, Right? Societal evils, like, like, um, give us a day our daily bread pointed out. We live with too much materialism, right? It's a societal evil and it's ripping off the rest of the world so that we can live like kings and queens. Individualism, perhaps. Uh, there's, there's societal evils that I'm not even aware of because we're part of it. And what I would do here is I pray, God, help me to see the system. The system that is against Christ, that is anti-Christ, that I am unknowingly a part of. I heard a silly story, but it illustrates the point, I think, quite well, of a father who was standing in line at the grocery store with his son. And he allowed his son to pick out a chocolate bar, and his son picked it, they got in line, and they were doing the right thing. They were going to pay for this chocolate bar. But as they were standing in line, they saw another man grab some items, put them in the pocket of his coat, and begin to walk out the store, clearly having no intention to pay for them. Well, the father, trying to raise his son in the right way, standing in line to pay for this chocolate bar, decides that this needs to be pointed out, to be an example for his son. So he, he points out the shoplifter and and the police come and deal with him. You might think, good for him. That's a, that's a pretty normal story. What was so significant about that? And if you didn't catch the irony of that story, it shows just how wrapped into societal evils we are. Chocolate. The majority of chocolate comes from unfair labor practices. Some including child labor and slavery. People living on pennies a day so that we can have cheaper chocolate. 
And now that you see it that way, you think, wow, I am a part of evil without even intending to be. Now, I understand stories like that rub us the wrong way in so many ways. And once I shared that story and someone told me, (laughs) they told me, that was a powerful story, but I'm still not giving up my chocolate. (laughs) And I understand that. But there is fair trade chocolate you can buy. (laughs) But but still, I I understand the whole, it, it, it seems enormous to think about where everything's coming from, what can we do? But you can start with little things and maybe just at least praying, God, show me a way to not contribute to the evil of this world. Open my eyes to see where I am unknowingly contributing. So no, I'm not going to say that you need to tonight go through all your clothes and find out where they were made and research whether or not that's a sweat factory. But I am asking that we start to pray that God would open our eyes to see where are we unwittingly spreading evil in this world when we should be the ones who are resisting the devil's work. So that's what this prayer does, is it it begins to shape me. It begins to talk to me. It begins to lead me. I'm not trying to say, God, look at me over here. It's me stepping into the presence of God where he already is. It's me getting my heart in tune, my mind in tune, my life in tune with his will. And so as a practical application, you can obviously pray this prayer every single day. I do. Not every day, but I often, almost daily, a few times a week, pray this prayer. I usually like to end my prayer sessions by reciting this prayer somewhat verbatim. I often mesh translations together. It happens, but I I like to recite this prayer as it is. I believe that Jesus wanted to mold our souls and to shape our desires through the words of it. But I also understand if you come from a tradition that had recited this prayer every single Sunday and more, at every Mass, at every service, and you just can't do it. I understand that. God never demanded you repeat this word for word. Never did he say that you couldn't. He just said, don't heap up empty words, because that's not how God notices us. So you can take the lines themselves and pray them. You can take one line a day and pray it throughout the week. You can dwell on a single one of those words, hallowed kingdom, bread, debt, evil. Or you can recite it in its entirety every day. Or you can take the themes it presents and just let your prayer life explore those themes. Either way, this is not just Jesus' prayer, or just the disciples' prayer, or just the Catholics' Our Father. This is the prayer. And I think it is done more in my life by reciting it than just simply winging it when I pray every day. So I encourage you to let this prayer shape you. Let it pull you into God. Rather than always letting your free thoughts and whatever you're feeling kind of dictate how you pray or what you pray, that's fine. And I do that. There's a time when I just need to dump my heart. 
But I also need structure. I need to be led to where God is. I need to be put where he is because it's more important that I enter God's turf than he enters my turf. God is not a thing that I possess and tell him what to do and kind of use him as like a controller for my dreams. It's the opposite. I'm the servant to him. I need to go into his courts, into his kingdom to do his will. Then I will be hallowed. Then I will be content with daily bread. Then I will be able to release the debts of those who've trespassed against me. And then I will be able to be more aware of where societal evils lurk that I don't contribute to them. Perhaps you just heard the snow plow going by. It has again resumed snowing. I hope that you're warm and that you're nourished by this prayer because I'm signing off. Hopefully I will see you next week. The forecast says nothing about snow, so we may finally end this gathering drought. And I sure hope we do. I look forward to teaching Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 to you next week. With grace and gratitude, this is Pastor Brandon. Have a good night.